0: We're continuing in this series on God's judgment. Now, last week was a uh, it was a like part one and part two of a sermon. You need to go back and you know take a listen to that. The title of it was God's wrath or God uh, God's judgment. It was parts five and six, wrath and death. We covered a lot in both the Old and the New Testament how that there comes a point in time where God takes action when the warnings are ignored. We we don't want to be in that place of having that action executed upon us. And I don't know what all that means. Because when you go through Scripture, Old and New Testament, you see uh, God's judgment, the action, judgment action, not just judgment warning, but judgment action being carried out in many different ways. And one of the things that it really saddens me how many Christians they are so influenced by world things as opposed to word things and there are Christians out there who want to it's like they just want to argue because their friends said or because their teacher at school said or because this organization said And they don't take the time to get into the Word. Well, you know, you can do that. Because God has given all humans that incredible gift of free will. So you can do whatever you want. But keep in mind that when you stand before God, every platform you supported is going to be called into account. And if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, you're in trouble. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Because I don't know how much trouble. I don't know the fullness of how all this judgment gets carried out on the day of judgment. But between now and then, you know, the smart thing is to just live according to the Word of God. And what He says. And don't argue with it. Because His word's not going to change. The only variable in this is us. We change or we don't. And so, in this series, we've had as a um, as a foundation, really, kind of two foundation verses. One is over there in First Peter chapter four, verse seventeen, where God says, "Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, in His house." And we could say it another way: Judgment begins in the body of Christ, and that's right. Now, uh, guys, I'm telling you, um, it's happening. There was I don't know that I will get to this today. I might include it as a PDF that you can download next to the MP3 of this sermon there at the website. But a prophecy that came forth back in, um, well, it was almost 15 years to the day. It was August 20th, 2006. And in that prophecy, God said, He is judging. Now, I'm summarizing. He's, he is judging. But he said in this prophecy that the judgment was not going to be uh, destruction, so on and so forth. That the judgment he spoke of 15 years ago was a conviction judgment. In other words, moving on in the body of Christ to convict people of what they're doing. Because that's where it always starts. It's in the spirit first before you start seeing it manifest, that pattern is in the Old Testament over and over again, where God would have a prophet stand up and tell the people, hey, you got to stop doing this, and you got to go back to doing that over there. And then the people had a choice. Most of the time, the people, they just they laughed at the prophets. In fact, if you go into the book of Hebrews and you read all of what's in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about how that Prophets were killed, tortured, cut in half because they took a stand for the Word of God and declared the warnings. And the people... Now, when I say that these people were tortured, beaten, cut in half, and all this other... The folks doing that to the prophets were the Jews. The people who had the Word. And they ignored it because they didn't want to be held accountable. Well, guys, guess what? as it was in the old testament it is today and god has even said in his word that the things he refers to things in the old testament in the new testament meaning he in the new testament he makes reference to things in the old testament as a reminder to us so we're we are absolute fools if we say well that was old testament stuff and it doesn't apply today well if it didn't apply today God wouldn't make reference to it in the New Testament. Now, we saw uh, in a previous message how that elements of the law are still in force today. But Jesus died under the penalty of those sinful acts. And there is no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, you know, you can trample underfoot the blood of Jesus and... Basically ignore what he's done for you, even though you've been sanctified by the power of salvation. And if you choose to go that direction, you know, God warns in his word. In fact, he even says and we won't be getting to all this, but you can read it. um, You know, read in Hebrews, read in first and second Peter. But God gives a warning and he says, you know, for those of you who have been born again, You've been, and I'm paraphrasing now, washed in the blood of my son. I've given you my life. I've given you. You know, you've been sanctified in all of this. And yet, you choose to sin willfully. Even after you have been born again. And that's that's the way you live. He says it would have been better for you to never have been born again. Than to have been born again and defiled your salvation with a lifestyle that is contrary to my word. Now what that tells me is this, and I don't know, again, I don't know how all this is going to play out, but if God says it would have been better for you to have never been born again, then that tells me the judgment on those people is going to be worse than the judgment on the people who were never born again. Now, some people don't believe that. See, I was raised to believe. Judgment is judgment. It's all the same. That's just the way it is. But when I get into the Word of God, I find out there are some sins, He says, you don't do them, and if you do them, you'll know you be executed. But then there are others, He calls them an abomination. Which means there is degree of sin, and if there's degree of sin, there's degree of punishment. Now, you may not believe that, But I say, go back into the Word of God and check this out. See what He says. Like I told you, I was raised to believe sin is sin and judgment is judgment. There aren't degrees of sin. Well, then why are some called abominations and some aren't? Why do some carry the death penalty and some don't? You follow what I'm saying? So then, from God's perspective, oh yeah, there are degrees of sin. He gives a warning in the New Testament He said, those, and I'm paraphrasing again, but those who are called to be teachers of my word, they're going to be held to a higher standard of judgment than others because they have the ability to lead the body of Christ away from me. So, yeah, there are degrees of judgment. Now, over in John chapter 12, you don't have to turn to this, but in John chapter 12, Jesus made the statement, that the standard by which we will be judged is the Word of God. So if you want to know what's headed in your direction, as far as judgment's concerned, all you have to do is read the Word of God and find out what He has said. You don't do this, you don't do that. You need to do this and you need to do that. Just find out the standards and apply it to your life. If you're born again, that is not an impossible thing to do. If you're born again, you can live a holy lifestyle. I was raised to believe that nobody can live a sinless lifestyle. That you're going to sin. That's just the way it is. Well, that's what I believed. That's what I accepted. Then, I heard somebody say, Well, no, you can live a holy lifestyle. You can live a sinless lifestyle. And on the inside of me, that old teaching was, you know, going tilt, tilt. You know, no, that can't be true. That can't be true. But then when I got into the Word of God and I started reading, I realized, man, that stuff I heard before was wrong. That was a lie. I am not destined to sin. I am destined to make a choice. But I am not destined to sin. Because if God says, I am holy, you be holy. That means the potential... In me, to be holy, it's there. And that within me is the potential to live... Now, get this. A sinless life. That's every Christian. Every person who's born again. The potential to live a sinless life is there. Otherwise, how could you be holy? Now, the potential is there, but again, what we do with it is something else. And some people... You know, they... they, It's almost like they're testing God. You know, poking the bear in the eye. You know, how many times can I poke the bear before, you know, it wakes up and that's it for me? You know, how many times can I go splish, splash in a water full of of sharks before I lose my arm? You know, people, it's like a lot of Christians, they want to test it. And what's interesting, you know, okay, Brother Martin, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear, okay, yeah, you're telling me that you know, if I live in adultery, that, you know, I, I could miss out uh, forever with God. Okay, but I, what I want to know is this. Like, how many times can I commit adultery before? Okay. How stupid. You just told me you're either not born again, or you're dumber than a box of rocks. You know, you're asking me to take the place of God in your life. So let's see, what? you know. Okay, I can commit adultery like eight times. But then on the ninth, I'm done for. Okay, so I've got two more times to commit adultery before. Seriously, seriously, if you ask how many times, how many times can I get drunk before I've gone too far? How many times can I get high before I've gone too far? How many times? How many times? It's like seriously, if you're asking a question like that, you're halfway to damnation already. Because you're just looking for a way to get God to bless what you're doing. To overlook your sin. You can't do that. You know, look over in Isaiah chapter 5. I was reading here not too long ago, in this chapter, I don't know what happens that leads me to reading certain things in Scripture. Scripture. I mean, obviously God is involved with it, but I cannot tell you it works like this way every time. It doesn't. So I don't even remember what led me to Isaiah chapter 5. I think I might know, but nevertheless, uh, I'm in Isaiah chapter 5. As I begin reading this, man, I'll tell you what. The Holy Spirit began pointing out to me that this whole chapter is prophetic relative to the body of Christ and this end time judgment that I've been teaching on. Now, we're going to walk through this. Now, we're not going to, we, we don't have the time to go through every verse, every word. But we're going to go through enough so that you can see this. And there are going to be times in this to where we're going to read something and then I'm going to read to you the New Testament equivalent or New Testament parallel or New Testament explanation as to what God is prophesying. Now, as you know, when you read in the Old Testament, initially it comes off as being exclusive to the people living in Old Testament times. However, if you really are pressing into God and pressing into His Word, you will begin to see the prophetic nature of, of, uh, well, scriptures, chapters, I mean, just all through the Old Testament, things will start to come alive to you in a way that you'd never seen before. Well, it's through this process of meditation. Now, here in Isaiah chapter 5, begin in verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now let's stop right there. I'm not going to be giving you all of the Hebrew words for everything we're going to make reference here today. Uh, But I'm going to be sharing with you some definitions. Now, in this, he's talking about a vineyard. And he says, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Then he talks about he fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, meaning, you know, he cleared out the land, planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it. Now, where it says a tower, that's like a watchtower. That's where... You're able to watch over the entire vineyard to guard and protect it and so forth. And also made a wine press therein. What is the wine press? Well, the wine press is where you put the grapes to press out the juice to eventually make wine. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, as I read this, here's the passage. And we're not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to point out two verses in this. From John chapter 15, listen to this. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. What he's talking about here in Isaiah chapter 1, or chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where he talks about the uh, the vineyard being planted. What does that represent? That represents Jesus coming down, completing His work here on earth, dying and being raised from the dead so that the vineyard of salvation, if you will, the vineyard of the kingdom, the vineyard of the body of Christ could be established here in the earth. And He says, He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine. In other words, what He's describing is the fact that when this was established by God, It was perfect in every way imaginable. Meaning, this vineyard that we are, we are the vineyard of the Lord. He's the vine, we're the branches. We're this vineyard, but in this vineyard of the kingdom, it's perfect. There's nothing in it, there are no stones that you could trip over. There, There are no weeds. I mean, it is absolutely, positively perfect. And he says he made a wine press therein. You know that song that we sing? I forget the name of it, but in the pressing and in the crushing, the new wine. What? What? That's the name of it? New wine? Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> what? This is a reference. The wine press is talking about the life of God in us being brought out as we. Okay. What? What? It, what? Um, what is a wine press to a grape? It is an unpleasant experience. <laughs> you know. Here's the grape, all happy. And the next thing you know, squish. (laughs) But why is it being squished? So that the precious juice can come out. Symbolic of this. The flesh has, the, the skin, the flesh has to be pressed so the life within can come out. Are you seeing the imagery? So there's, so not only are we the vineyard, you know, he's the vine, we're the branches. But he says, there's a wine press in here. And if you're going to produce what needs to be produced, guess what? You're going to have to go through the wine press. But then he says, he looked that it should bring forth grapes. Well, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Now that's John chapter 15, and I only pulled out verses 5 and 8, but read that whole chapter. But then he says, and it brought forth wild grapes. Well, when I first read that, I thought, Well, okay, you wanted grapes, you got them. But but there's a difference here. You know, I looked up this phrase, wild grapes, and what it's talking about, sour. Have you ever like bitten into a grape that you thought was going to be good and sweet and juicy? And then when you bite into it, it's like, ooh, gross, and you spit it out, right? Okay, that's what this is talking about. It's talking about grapes that are good for nothing. It's talking about fruit that is corrupted. Fruit that cannot be used for anything productive. That fruit, that it's, it no longer has the potential that it's supposed to have. And so he's saying, my vineyard was supposed to bring forth grapes that could be used for great purposes. But he says, instead, the only thing I could find, or, no, let me put it like this. Imagery, mixed in with the good grapes, There were a bunch of wild grapes. And then he picks it up here in verse 3. And he says, Oh now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah. Now rephrase that again for the prophetic message in this. Oh now, inhabitants of the kingdom of God. Oh now, inhabitants, the body of Christ. Oh now, inhabitants, my children. You know, however you would want to phrase this. He says, oh now... And and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. In other words, he's saying, okay, you people that are so smart, you judge between me and my vineyard. And you tell me, what more could I possibly have done to make it better than what it already is? Said a different way. What in the world could I have done for your salvation that would have made it better than what it already is? What is there that is incomplete about your salvation? What is it that I could have done that would be better in the kingdom than what I've already done? What is it I could do for you That is better than what I've already done. Now listen to this. Colossians 2.10 And ye are complete in him. Which is the head of all principality and power. We're complete. That means there is no lack. And there is nothing lacking. Everything. No matter what it is. That completeness is in Christ. And if you are in Christ. Then you are in that completeness. And it's like he could say. it's, It's almost like God could say. What is there that's incomplete in Christ? I mean, what more? You judge me. What more could I possibly have done? And in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? So great a salvation. If, If it's so great, then how did it get... Ungreat. Are you seeing the imagery in this? And he says, what more could I have done? How could I have made this any better for you? How is it that in the perfection of the perfect vineyard, instead of the good grapes, I'm getting crops of these wild grapes? What's going on? And we pick it up in verse 5. He says, and now go to, I will tell you, what I will do to my vineyard I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned, nor digged, but now look look closely at this, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Are you seeing verse five and six? What's he saying? Judgment. I'm pouring out my judgment on my vineyard. Because you have spoiled it. You have become the wild grapes. Now, granted, in the body of Christ, not all Christians fit this. I get it. But this is prophetic for this in time. What's going on right now in the body of Christ. Now, in this, I want you to listen. Look here again in verse 6. He says, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. In Hebrews chapter 6, listen to this, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, "...if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected." and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. Now when he says whose end is to be burned, he's talking about hell. He's talking about the lake of fire. And he says, if your life is producing the thorns and the briars, then guess what? You're on the path to an eternity in a lake of fire. And there's nothing God can do about it. Because if you don't make that decision to turn from this, then I can't help you. I cannot redeem you unless you want to be redeemed. I can't restore you if you don't want to be restored. Well, look here in in Isaiah chapter 5. And let's go to verse... um, Well, look at verse 7. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts... Is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant? And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Okay, now, symbolism. For the vineyard of the Lord is the body of Christ. The vineyard of the Lord, it's the Christians. The vineyard of the Lord is the kingdom. I mean, however you want to term this. And he says... He looked for judgment. Now, where is he looking for this judgment? He's looking for it in his vineyard. And where is he looking for righteousness? He's looking for it in his vineyard. He's not looking for it outside. He's looking for these things in his vineyard. Now, notice this. It says, he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. Now, this word, oppression... It comes from the um, the Hebrew word mispa, and what it means is bloodshed, the putting to death of those not deserving to die. In other words, the shedding of innocent blood. To bring it to modern terms, you're looking at abortion. And he says here, I'm looking for judgment, or in other words, I'm looking for discernment, the ability to understand the difference between right and wrong as i have laid it out to you but what am i finding instead i am finding in my vineyard the murdering of the unborn the shedding of the innocent blood and and we think that's okay obviously not god is making a distinction here let me tell you something where if if you're watching listening to this and you go to a church where the leadership endorses abortion, you had, bless God, better get out of there ASAP. Because that means you are supporting that which God calls an abomination. You better get out of that church. You can get mad at me for saying that, but the one thing you don't want to do is support somebody who supports that kind of murder. You don't want to do it. But then notice also he says, he looks um, for righteousness But behold, a cry. And I found this interesting, so I started doing some research. Now, this word cry, it comes from the Hebrew word sayaka. And that may be a mispronunciation, but it means an outcry. But there's there's a really interesting image that goes along with this word. It, It describes a call for help, a wailing and despair, cries of outrage... Regarding sin, like that which went up against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you, you don't have to turn to this, you can look it up later if you want to, but in Genesis chapter 18 verse 21, the same word cry is used. It comes from the same Hebrew word. Now in that passage, what God is saying, and again, imagery, the Lord is saying, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great because of all of the 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 wickedness and so forth. He's saying it's like the city is crying out because of all the wickedness taking place within it. Well, we know what that wickedness was. It was primarily, along with the violence, but it was primarily the homosexual activity, the perversions that were taking place. And what God is saying here is, I was looking for righteousness in my vineyard. But let me tell you one of the things that I found. I found that there was a cry coming forth out of my vineyard. And this cry had to do with the perversions that are going on and being accepted within my vineyard. All these churches out there that are going to tell you that love is love, all these churches that are going to approve of of that type of behavior, the perversions, you need to understand there's judgment coming. No, I don't think a lot of people do understand this. God's been convicting for years. And they have been searing their conscience. You need to understand. Look, I don't know how it's going to play out. What I'm going to tell you is this. Don't you be shocked if people don't start dying. Don't you be shocked if churches start burning down with people in them. Don't. I'm not prophesying these things. I'm just saying, if you study the Scriptures, you're going to find a history of things happening. How many times in Scripture did the fire of God fall from heaven? How many times, or, or is it possible that during a service, when a preacher's standing up and he's explaining, God knows how you are. God made you a special way. And, you know, love is love and, and God understands how we express it and blah, 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 however it goes, when all of a sudden maybe there's a massive lightning bolt that strikes the church and it bursts into flame. I don't know. I'm not prophesying that those things will happen. But I'm telling you. We have to take this aspect of God's judgment seriously. Now, <laughs> over in, in uh, Jude, and you don't have to turn to this, but in Jude, chapter 1, in fact, I'll tell you what, I'll read this to you later. This one, We'll go to Jude here in a little bit later. Right now, jump over Isaiah, still in chapter 5, but go to, go to verse 20. Woe! Now he's still speaking to the vineyard. You need to understand this. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil; that put darkness for light, and light for darkness; that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Now, see this verse 20. We could go over there to James, where he, uh, the Lord, talks about you know, you know, the tongue, how powerful it is and how you can't have sweet and bitter coming from the same fountain. And here he says, you've got people trying to mingle the sweet with the bitter, and they're telling you that the bitter is sweet, and the sweet is bitter. They're telling you that evil is good, and good is evil. That that darkness is light, and light is darkness. And Jesus even warned about that. He said, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does that mean? What it means is, if you have accepted darkness as being truth but you think it's light, it's darker than you could even begin to imagine. And when he says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, folks, (laughs) if God is saying this, if he's saying woe to them, meaning woes be upon, do you see he's speaking judgment to them? He is declaring a woe. What is a woe? Well, it's a bad thing you don't want. He says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. If this is God's declaration, why in the world would you want to be in a church that is declaring evil to be good and good to be evil? These people, these these Christians out there, that are telling you that you can't be like this and you can't live this way. Folks, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand His grace and mercy. They don't understand... They don't understand. No, no, we do understand. That's the thing. You leave Scripture in context and you do understand. And he says in verse... Well, look, look again. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine men of strength to mingle strong drink. This means... Those who incorporate, how can I put this? It's not, today, it's not simply a matter of alcohol. It's if you're doing things to impact your mental state, whatever it is you're doing, it can be pills. It can be something you're, you're shoving in your veins. It could be something you're drinking, stuff you're smoking. And he's saying, woe unto them that do this stuff. And then in verse 23, he says, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him that justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him now listen to what is recorded based on what we just read here listen to second peter chapter 2 but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false prophets among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Are you, do you see how that that is the New Testament version of what we just read here in Isaiah chapter 5. And God says, woe to those people. But now if you look in verse 24, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One. Now you'll notice where he says, as the fire devoureth the stubble, the flame consumeth the chaff, their root shall be as rottenness. What does that mean? What it means they're going to die at the root. Remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it died from the roots up. In other words, this process of dying from the roots up, what it represents is this. You're dying at the very core of your being. And at first, people don't realize it. At first, people don't recognize this is what has happened. Because on the outside, everything still looks really good. Now, to kind of give you an illustration, you still stand in the pulpit every Sunday. And you talk about God. Talk about His Word. Talk about Jesus. Lift your hands in worship. But what you don't realize, and what others don't realize, is that as He puts it in here, that your root is as rottenness. And Now, let me read to you a New Testament variation of this. It's from Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, meaning, you know, winds of doctrines. Now look here, trees whose fruit withereth, "...without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots." Now listen to this process. Trees whose fruit withereth. Why would the tree's fruit begin to wither? It's because they're dead on the inside. When when the root dies, eventually that death begins to spread throughout the entire tree. It is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. And he's saying that these trees have fruit that withereth. That means their root has been dead. And now what fruit they did have is starting to wither. Then they get to the point of being without fruit. And when they get to that point of being without fruit, the very next step is they are twice dead. You can't be twice dead unless you were dead, made alive, and then you died the second time. This is talking about people who at one time were truly born again. But now they have, they followed the pernicious ways of these, these false prophets, these false teachers. And now they're twice dead, and he says, plucked up by the roots. And in verse 20, uh, in verse 24, you know, he talks about that they've cast away the law of the Lord of hosts. That is exactly what he's talking about, denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. When it says denying him, it, it doesn't mean Jesus was never born. It doesn't mean, well, Jesus, Whatever He said was a lie. No, what it's saying is, they are denying that Jesus spoke a truth that you have to live by. They're denying that His Word is a standard. That His life is the standard. They're denying what He said, that you, you can't come under the Father any other way but by Me. They stand up and they tell you that there are many paths to God. That all paths lead to the same God. They're not denying His existence. They are denying Him. You understand that? Well, now look at this. Verse 25. Therefore, because of all of this, is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people, and He has stretched forth His hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. In other words, the imagery here, He's there on his throne, and, and it's, it's reached the breaking point. That's it. It's time to act. I've warned, I've warned, I've warned, and they have ignored. He stretches forth his hand, and that woe is released. That judgment is released. And stuff starts happening. Now, it's kind of descriptive in this, but I don't know exactly how it would manifest today. There's a lot of imagery here. All I'm telling you is the hand of God is stretching forth now. Hear me. His hand is stretching forth now. And when it becomes fully extended, I have no idea how it's all going to play out. But I'm telling you, some of you in this room right now, you have friends or family members who fit the description that he's talking about here in this passage. And I'm telling you, it's very possible you may be attending some funerals. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid, but I'm just telling you, we're at a point in history... Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back for a church without spot or blemish, and we cannot play games with God. All throughout the Old Testament, you know, you can read the Old Testament, really, you could read it in one day, if you just sat down and started reading non-stop. And so basically, in the Old Testament, you're covering roughly 4,000 years of human history. So you can read where a prophet stood up and prophesied, You better not do this, you better stop that, and so forth, or God's going to judge. And then a couple of chapters later, here comes the judgment. And you think, okay, well yesterday he prophesied, and now here today the judgment. No, there were times when decades passed. When a long time passed before finally that judgment was released. The reason for that was because God was giving them time to repent. He kept sending the prophets to remind them. They kept ignoring. They kept killing the prophets. They kept uh, just uh, uh, grabbing a hold of all this stuff they wanted to believe that appealed to the flesh. Like he talks about here, you know, the wantonness and so forth. Guys, we are at a time now to where the warning is being, it's, it's been delivered, it is continually being delivered, and the hand of God, you know, Maybe he's got it halfway out of his pocket. Getting, Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? He, His hand is getting ready to be stretched out in a way we haven't seen. Personally, now you don't have to agree with me if you don't want to, but I personally believe that a lot of these wildfires in California are the hand of God outstretched. You know, they're going to say, well, somebody, you know, campfire, or somebody arson, or it was lightning. They're... However you want to excuse it, that's not normal what's going on out there. It's just, it's not. And it's been going on now for quite a while. That's not normal. The drought that's happening, out that's not normal. It shouldn't be like that. Well, it's global warming. That's interesting because the other day I read an article about how a freeze is coming to the northern part of this continent. And I'm thinking, well, wait a second. I thought we were supposed to burn up here. But now you're telling me that we're going to... Well, yeah, but the freezing is a result of the global warming. Ah, okay, that clears it all up. (laughs) Now, he's given... He said all this stuff. And in verse 25, he's talking here about judgment. But notice this in verse 26. While this is happening, his hand is stretched out. The judgment is being executed But at the same time, verse 26, And He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like the young lions. Yea, they shall shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. Now what's this talking about? Guys, He's saying in the midst of this, Joel's army is going to rise and there's going to be a revival. Now, look at this in verse 26, where he says, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. That word ensign, it's an imagery word. And it's talking about he's going to lift up a banner. He's going to lift up a sign. He's going to lift up a billboard. He's going to lift up something. In other words, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all of this judgment, God is going to be able to raise up a standard in front of the entire world. And he says, when I do that, it is going to be a sign to the nations, to all this world, and he says, and he will hiss unto them. That word—it's kind of confusing the way that's presented there. Hiss—it sounds like he's mad and he hates them. That's not what he's talking about, because part of the imagery of this word—it's kind of like—you uh, ever uh, been around parents and they want their kids to, you know, come on kids, it's time to come in, and you know the kids are doing, but then the parents, you know, they—they they, they whistle. You know what I'm talking about? I can't do that, <laughs> but they whistle. Okay, in other words. A clarion call is sent out. Come in. And the kids hear the whistle. And what do they do? They turn. They recognize. They hear it. They recognize. What is that sound? And then they see, well, that's mom and dad. You know, they're they're calling us to come in. And they come in. And what he's saying is, first off, I'm going to raise up this nation, this standard. I'm going to raise up, put it like this. I'm going to raise, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this judgment, there is a group of, of healthy grapes that I am going to be able to raise up in my vineyard. And when I do, I am going to send out a call. I'm going to, I'm going to whistle. I'm going to hiss. I'm going to cry out. I'm going to capture the attention of the nations through this standard that I'm raising up. And when I do, they are going to respond. And from the ends of the earth, they are going to be coming to the cross of Jesus Christ. They are going to repent. They're going to call upon the name of the Lord and they're going to be saved. And he says, In verse 27, out of those that are being lifted up, he says, they're not going to be weary. They're not going to stumble. They're not going to slumber. They're not going to sleep. Their garment shall not fall apart. Because why? We're going to be clothed in the armor of the Lord. It will not fail. He says, their arrows are sharp, their bows are bent, their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint. Are you you seeing the imagery in this? He's describing an army that is in a full out attack, in in perfect coordinated attack against what is going on. Call it the sin of the world, the darkness of the world, the unrighteousness of the world, the demonic strongholds of the world. And he says, their roaring shall be like a lion, they'll roar like young lions, their roar lay hold of the prey, carried away safe, and none shall Deliver it. in other words, who 's the prey, the people out there that need Jesus Christ, and when they roar, what are they roaring because in the realm of the spirit, what this is representing is they are going to declare the name of Jesus they're going to declare the Word of God, and in the realm of the spirit, it is going to be like a roar that is coming forth from the mouth of the lion of Judah through my servants, and they are going to take the, the the people that are out there that need Jesus who respond to this hissing, this calling, they're going to respond to this, and then those in my army, they're going to pull them in. They're going to draw them in, and nothing the devil can can even think about trying to do will be able to reverse this and recapture the prey that are brought into my kingdom. And he says in verse 30, In that day they're going to roar like the the roaring of the sea. And then he says, if one look to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, the light is, is darkened and the heavens thereof. What that's talking about is the powers of the enemy. They're looking for some way to counteract this. All they're going to see is darkness. All they're going to see is defeat. Because there's nothing that they're going to be able to do to stop this army once this army rises up. Now look over... Real briefly in Joel chapter two. <coughs> and you're going to see this spelled out with even more clarity. In verse one, and keep in mind what we just read over there in Isaiah twenty six or Isaiah five, verses twenty six through thirty. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh. For it is nigh at hand. Blowing the trumpet, sound the alarm. That is a variation on that theme of the hissing. The sounding forth. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning sped upon the mountains. A great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like. Neither shall be any more after it. Even to the years of many generations. These are the people that are a part of that ensign. That standard that is being raised up. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. In other words, (coughs) when they speak, the anointing of their words is going to come in contact with all of the evil that's out there, and the evil will not be able to stand up against it. It will be burned up, if you will, by the fire of the purity and holiness of the word of God, they declare. The appearance, the appearance of them, verse 4, is as the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. We just read about that over there in Isaiah chapter 5. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth a stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like a might, like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his own ways and they shall not break ranks. In other words, they will stay in formation. What that represents is unity. Listen, I'm telling you. Over there in Isaiah chapter 5, and here in this passage, that ensign that's being raised up, the people that are in this latter-day army, there's going to be a unity among them. And it's going to be not just a local unity, it's going to be a worldwide unity among all the believers who are part of this army. And he says that uh, none shall break ranks. Verse 8, neither shall one thrust another. There won't be competition. We're not going to be fighting to see who can build the biggest church. We're going to rejoice in any church that grows in the kingdom of God. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. In other words, when the enemy attacks, (laughs) no weapon formed against you shall prosper. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. In, In other words, devil, you can run, but you can't hide. We're coming after you. And we will win. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide in it? So here we see like an extended or a lengthy um, amplified version of what we read over there in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 26 through 30. And God is saying, here's what I'm planning. He's telling you right here, this is what's going to happen. We saw it over in Isaiah, we're seeing it here. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. (coughs) But then, what's interesting is that He follows this up with a request. Look in verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. What does that represent? Repentance, for one thing, a willingness to admit to lukewarmness, to spiritual coldness, to putting the the, the things of life ahead of the things of the Spirit, to choosing a, a feel-good comfort lifestyle while ignoring the things of God. He says, rend your heart and and not your garments. It, you know how in the Old Testament... A lot of times you'd read where, you know, somebody get all upset about something, they rip their clothes up. And God is, God, what God is saying here is this. You know, you can put on an outward show of repentance and symbolically rend your garments. He's saying, no, I'm looking past the torn clothing and I'm looking at your heart. He says, rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And those that suck the breast. Meaning, he's talking babies on up. Do you realize what he's saying in this? He's saying just because... You've got some babies. That does not excuse you from being gathered together and assembling together. Well, you know, we gotta keep the baby at home, you know, the baby got diarrhea. Well, bring a bunch of diapers. I'm not trying to be silly, but what I'm saying is when you read scripture, God eliminates a lot of the excuses that we use. Well, we can't be there, worked hard last night, and God is saying, Really? How about if I strengthened you supernaturally by my spirit? Oh, but God, I'm not so sure you could do that. I mean, because I worked hard yesterday. I mean, we can come up with all kinds of excuses. And he, and he says here, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of his closet. Now, symbolically, who's the bridegroom? Okay, That's Jesus. Now, who's the bride? Symbolically, that's us. What he's talking about is the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and the bride coming out of her closet and the two joining together in spiritual intimacy to receive a flow of the anointed life of God enabling them to go forth as this army and fulfill everything that God is saying that they're going to fulfill. And he continues on in this. We're not going to read all of it, but he continues on in this and what he's saying is, Repent, make it right before me. He's saying, those of you in leadership, you've got a responsibility. He's talking to me here. He's saying, those of you in, in uh, leadership, you've got a responsibility to seek me, to come before me. One of the things, if I have failed, well, now I'm going to say if I failed. Yeah, I'm going to say that, you know, I've been here, what, 22 years? So, yeah, yeah there have been failures along the way. I'm not I'm not going to deny that, where I have, I should have done this, and, you know, we should have done that, then. One of the things that, like it or not, and I've talked about this before, even in this series, you know, we're going to have to get our lives structured so that when there is a, like he said here, verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, you know, when he's talking about this, He's talking about coming together. You know, the whole concept of verse 15, a solemn assembly. Look, we're going to have to, and again, I'm talking to me too. We're going to have to decide, what do we really want? You know, are we really that concerned about being a part of this army that we've read about? Does it really matter? And if it does, we're going to have to be willing to alter our lives and come together for times of prayer, times of worship, times of fasting, times of seeking God. If I say, okay, now look, folks, next, next week, and I'm not saying this, or two weeks from now, but if, but if the Lord leads me to stand up and say, we're going to have a prayer revival. You know, starting Sunday night, such and such, and going through Friday night, such and such. From 7 until 9, 7 until 10 or whatever, we're going to be in here and we're going to be praying before God. You know, if I say that, how many people, how many of the folks that, you know, here and watching who normally would be here, how many excuses are going to be given? Well, we can't. OK, well, why not? Well, because the kids have this. What is it they have? Well, they got their sports. They've got their. OK, well, you know, you're starting to fall into this category of what God is saying. "Woe to these people. Because you're training your children to deny Jesus. We're supposed to be there for prayer. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Well, All right. Stay home. I got homework. Bring your homework. You understand what I'm saying? We have, honestly, in the body of Christ, we've been trained to compromise. We've been trained to take it easy. We've been trained to not stand up and do what's right before God. And the thing is... It's almost like we forget that when the solemn assemblies were called back in Bible days, Old or New Testament, those folks had to, there was a tremendous amount of upheaval in their lives. You know, a lot of them, they had to walk. They didn't have a horse or or a a mule or a cow or an ox or whatever or a cart. I mean, they had to walk to get wherever they were going. And we see in Scripture, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, When there was that mighty move of God there, you know, in the first uh, two, three chapters of the book of Acts, and the people were gathering together every day. That was a tremendous hardship on them. You know, back then, they didn't have washing machines. They had to go down to the river or the lake or whatever to wash their clothes. When You know, you read, what's interesting, you get in here and you read about, you know, and -and so-and-so, you know, walked into the house of, you know, so-and-so and and, uh, the host, You know, He he prepared the fatted calf and He baked unleavened bread and so forth. You know, you you read that in one verse. In like two seconds, you have read that verse. Do you know how long it takes to bake bread? How long it takes to kill the fatted calf? I mean, it's not like they went to the refrigerator and got a bunch of calf burgers out. No. This takes a long time. And I remember I'm reading these things and I'm thinking, man... You know how hungry you'd be by the time the meal is ready? The point I'm making is this. We don't like the idea of our lives being disrupted. But back then, their lives were disrupted far more than ours. Far more than ours. Well, you know, but I work hard. How many hours did you work? I worked ten hours yesterday. Some of those people back then, they worked sun up to sundown. And they didn't have any kind of automatic anything to help them with their job. The truth is, <laughs> you imagine we get to heaven, we try to explain to people who had to work hard in the fields all day long, who spent. Remember, Peter talk or Jesus talking to Peter, and they said we have fished all night and didn't catch anything. <laughs> Do you realize back then in those days, the people who were fishers, they they would spend all day or all night in the boat trying to catch enough fish. To take to market, to sell, so they have money to buy what they needed. Life was not easy back then, guys. It wasn't easy. We've got it made. You know, back then, for somebody to attend church, that the church existed 30 miles away, they'd have to start at least a day ahead of time, to get there. Here, we just have to get up an extra 15 minutes early. God help us. <laughs> We need to reevaluate because God is saying, Look at this, turn even unto me with all your heart. Verse twelve, turn unto me with all your heart. We're not doing that the way we could. I'm guilty too. It's too easy to just sit down and watch a bunch of television. It's too easy to get on the computer and and spend however long reading every post on social media. It's too easy to do that stuff. And so God is saying, you know what, if you're going to be what I want you to be here in this, if you want to be a part of this army, there's going to have to be a whole lot of flesh mortification. you going to have to be. And you're going to have to be there. And, I mean, I know that we've got, let's say, under 21s, watching, listening, whatever. You know, you're going to have to think hard about this, whether you want to be this or not because remember in the old testament the new testament kids didn't have the liberty to do what kids do today i mean there were rules and you did what what the word said and if you know you as kids you know i mean he's talking here look at here i mean he said right in this he said gather the people sanctify verse 16 the congregation assemble the elders The old people gather the children and the babies. That must mean that somehow, some way, in this assembling together, even babies can be impacted. Guys, if we want this, it's going to take a whole lot of altering of our lifestyles. You know, it's nice to have hobbies. It's nice to have recreation. And that's not wrong. But when those things begin to interfere with seeking God, okay, there's a problem. You know, I don't have to, if I'm a woodworker, I don't have to spend my time, my hours, making the best wood, whatever, so that I can win awards. You know, there comes a point in time to where we have to make that decision. Is this what we want with God? I'm not talking about going to hell or going to heaven. I'm talking about seeing God move through us as we are a part of this army. How many of our family members need to see this in us? Oh yeah, we'll get criticism. There'll be those in the family, Christians now, they're going to call the good we're pursuing an evil effort. As though we don't care. As though we don't love. You know what? We just have to put up with it. Even Jesus' own family. Not not all of His family. Obviously, His mother really didn't. But, I mean, He had brothers. He had sisters. And the Bible makes it clear that He had brothers. They thought it was nuts. You know, if you're really who you say you are, then go down there and prove it. That's what they said to Him. His own family. And basically, Jesus said, You know what? You guys can say whatever you say, but I've got a path to walk, and I'm walking this path. And when I'm on that cross... I'll be on that cross for you guys. Whether you ever accept it or not. I will be dying for you. Well, He's died for us. I examine my own life. What is it going to take for me? And I realize it's going to be a battle. A major battle. To deal with my flesh and the uh, just the The way that I have allowed my day-to-day life to be structured, it's gotta change. It's gotta be restructured. There are things that God's pointing out to me. Too much time on that thing, too much time on this thing over here, too much time doing that. Okay, it's gotta change. I mean, it, it has to. It, it, it doesn't, it's not a question of, uh, me not making it to heaven. It's a question of me being used by God To the fullest in these end times. There's got to be a a reckoning. You know? A personal reckoning. I don't know what's coming for us as far as the congregation. I don't know that... um, I mean, let me put it like this. I won't be surprised if indeed God says, Okay, call a solemn assembly. The week of such and such. It's going to be prayer week. Or he comes along and says, the week of such and such is going to be um, worship week. And you know, the truth is, we really shouldn't feel inconvenienced by those things. We should be excited about it. We should look forward to it. And we should rejoice when we get here for it. Because we are gathered together under that ensign. Of the banner of Christ, pressing into Him, so that we can be used in this army. Let's be encouraged by this, guys. And, and honestly, you know, I have prayed about this. I'm going to continue praying about it. And I'm encouraging you: pray about this. God, show me how I need to restructure and reorder my life so that it lines up with what I'm supposed to be doing. Does that mean He's going to eliminate? All TV? Well, no. I mean, he might, but the, the goal is not eliminating that which you are allowed to keep. the uh, The goal is restructuring to be in line with His will, and He will give you the revelation and the wisdom on what to do. Let's do this. You know, let's 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 be, you know, an outpost in this army. So right now, everybody, uh, go ahead and stand. Father, the judgment, it's, it's been here, it's been going on for a long time. You've been judging in the realm of the Spirit. You've been doing everything you possibly can to bring about conviction. Some people, I'm sure, have responded, others have not. But it's my prayer that anybody who is associated in any way with this ministry if there is conviction going on in their life, that, Father, they will repent and they will make it right with You. Father, I pray for all of us that we will allow You to reveal to us what needs to be restructured in our lives, that You will help us understand how to do it, and that we will do it. Father, I understand that for some people... It may take a little longer to reorder their life, but the potential and the possibility for it to be done is real. And then, Father, I say, make Your desires, Your will, clearly known so that we as a congregation are doing everything You desire us to do. Not as religious form and formality, but according to Your will so that we can be a vital part in this last day army. I thank You for it. I praise You for it. The Lord just impressed upon me, and and I'm not accusing anybody because I don't know. So, you know, you just kind of take this and evaluate your own life, but what He just impressed upon me was this. If you've got sin in your life, make it right before Him. Get it out. Because you're facing the possibility of it being openly revealed to the entire church. So, those of you that don't have anything going on, you don't have anything to be concerned about. But those of you that do, I hope a cold chill went down your spine. Because, see, in the Word of God, He makes it very clear that if people don't repent, their sin can be exposed to everyone. And it's not because He's trying to embarrass, what He's trying to do is get you to the place of sincere regret and repentance. To make it right with Him. Praise God. All right. Well, listen, you guys have a blessed afternoon. Don't let sermons like this get you down. We're crying out loud. Don't let them get you down. Rejoice that truth is being revealed.